Well, please turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. We'll be considering verses 1 through 12 this morning as we continue our study through the ministry and teaching of the Lord Jesus. And if you're using one of the Pew Bibles this morning, you can find this passage on page 773. Page 773. Now this part of Matthew's teaching, it records Jesus' instruction on, on the topic of marriage and divorce. On the topic of marriage and divorce. And I'll, I'll just say from the outset that this is not an easy topic to discuss or to preach on in this setting. And so I, I come to this, this passage sobered and desperate for the Lord's help. And, and I, I pray that this will, will be helpful to us. I believe it will be because God has given us his word and his word is good. Every part of it. All of it is, is given to us for our instruction, for our help. Some parts of it are easier to understand. Some parts are, are harder to understand, harder to accept. And yet all of it is for our good. And this passage in particular, I believe, has implications for the way in which we respond to the cultural tides that we find ourselves in in 2022. This passage, though it may be hard at points, it provides a, an anchor so that we will not be swept away in the current of the cultural revolution that is taking place. That it'll help us as we make sense of all that is going on around us, especially the, the LGBTQ revolution that has taken place. These cultural currents are strong. Big corporations and businesses are, are bowing before the tide. They're, they're being swept along and they're sweeping others along in them. Whether you turn on the TV or, or just show up at the office, you will face the, the pressure what will keep you anchored? What will keep you from compromising? We need God's word, all of it. And if we don't have a passage like this one that we'll be thinking about this morning, sooner or later we're going to get tired of swimming against the tide. And either us or our children, our grandchildren, we will be swept along and find ourselves in the, in the sea of cultural religion. So before we read this text, let me just remind you of where we are in Matthew. You know, we've come this morning to a new section of instruction. Jesus begins here in Matthew 19, and he, he, he kind of goes from here to Matthew 20, and he addresses the big three, if you will, money, sex, and power. Those, those big things that, that, people, that grab people's attention, that, that fuel our lives, that we end up living for. And Jesus relates each of these things to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus lays out the values of the kingdom of heaven as they relate to our romantic lives, our relationships, to our possessions, and to our quest for status. And he, he turns the world upside down. And he's, he's helping his disciples in these, in these next couple of chapters to see 
He's shining light on the path in front of them and showing them, this is what it will mean to follow me, to take up your cross and deny yourself and follow me. This is what it'll mean for your romantic life. This is what it'll mean for your possessions. This is what it'll mean for your status in society. Here's what it'll mean. Are you all in? Are you all in for, with Jesus? Do you trust him enough to follow him even as he sheds light on the difficult path that lies before you? I believe the main overarching lesson that Jesus is, is getting at in this section, which we'll be reading here in a moment, is this. That when it comes to marriage, even within marriage, we must submit our relational rights and desires to God's kingship that we must submit our relational rights, what we perceive to be our rights, and our desires, what we long to, to get out of relationships. We must submit all of that to King Jesus. We must surrender it all to him. We must lay it all on the altar before him and say, and say you know, here it is, Lord. You may have all of this, but I am submitted to your authority now. Do you trust Jesus that much? Do you trust him that much? Let's begin our reading this morning. Matthew 19, starting in verse 1. And this is a, this will present a dialogue that Jesus has with the Pharisees. We're going to read verses 1 through 9, and then we'll take, we'll stop at verse 9, and then we'll, we'll consider his second mini discussion that he has with his disciples. That's that's tied into his discussion with the Pharisees as they're, they're trying to make sense of the implications of what Jesus has just said to the Pharisees. So we'll, we'll start in verse 1 and we'll read down to verse 9. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large, large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Well, in this first part of, of this uh, passage, I think what Jesus is, is doing in his answer to the Pharisees is he's, he's trying to expose the hard-heartedness of human rebellion against God specifically in the area of marriage. And this is our first point this morning. In our rebellion as sinful human beings, we seek to undo God's design and work in marriage. In our rebellion, we seek to undo God's design and work 
in marriage. Now, it's helpful for us to understand the Pharisees' test. It says that they, they tested him by asking him this question about, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So that tells us they weren't coming to him as uh, taking the seat of humble students, but rather more like secret police looking to trip him up in his words and catch him so that they could discredit him, so that they could capture him. And at this time, the question of divorce and on what grounds divorce was permissible, it was a hot-button topic. It was controversial. And so they wanted Jesus to take a controversial stand in a public way, and they were hoping to make him less popular. They were hoping, they, they were pretty sure that the way he would answer this question would probably offend a lot of people. They saw those crowds, and out of their jealousy, as Jesus is healing them, as those crowds that used to sit and listen to them, they're now listening to this, this Jesus, this religious teacher from the north. And they're hoping to show them, hey, you don't want to follow this guy. Look at some of the things he says. You really want to live under his teaching? Now, there were two competing schools of thought, two sides of this controversy on divorce at the time. Uh, and they're represented by the names of two Jewish rabbis, Shammai and Hillel. So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and give you those, those names so that you can kind of have something to hang uh, your thoughts on. Shammai and Hillel, two sides to the controversy on divorce. Think of Shammai as the like, conservative side, the, the stricter side, and Hillel, that was, he was the more liberal, kind of open uh, open side to the question of divorce. And these, these two sides, they disagreed on the interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, which says that when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends it out of her house, etc., etc., etc. We'll come back to this text in a moment. But, but their disagreement had to do with their interpretation of that little phrase. If the husband finds some indecency in the wife. Now, you'll notice this speaks of husbands divorcing their wives and not vice versa. Uh, in the ancient world, in, in the, the male-dominated society, uh, a, a divorced wife had little protection or rights. And so for, for a woman to be divorced, well, it was like being set adrift in a little canoe on the open sea. And uh, oftentimes, they would not be protected. They, would not be, they didn't have rights. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have been stood up for. And so it was a very risky thing for a woman to initiate a divorce and to put herself in that uncertain situation. But for men... Um, not so much. And so divorce was almost always assumed to be initiated by the husband. They were the only ones who would, who would usually do this kind of thing, divorce their wives. And the husband in this scenario, in, in the case law from Deuteronomy 24, he divorces his wife because of some indecency that he finds in her. So these two rabbis, Shammai and Hillel, they interpreted this some indecency very differently. Shammai, he interpreted it as that there must be some kind of um, like 
sexual immorality on the wife's part. But even this, he, his followers tended to define pretty broadly. You know, they, they would say that there had to be some kind of unchastity, but it didn't, it didn't even necessarily have to be an act, a sexual act. It could just be a flirtatious behavior or kind of a, a disposition to be flirtatious even. So they would say that, you know, even if a wife went outside in public with her hair unpinned, that might constitute some indecency and give the husband the right to divorce his wife. Or if she wasn't, if she wasn't dressing as modestly in, in public, if she was wearing, uh, they would say, like a sleeveless dress in public, well, that might constitute some indecency and, and thus give the husband the legal right to divorce his wife and marry someone else. Now, that's, that was the conservative side. Hillel was much more loose with what they interpreted some indecency to mean. For them, it could be that the wife burnt supper or that the husband didn't really care for her anymore and he'd found a more beautiful woman. And therefore, she had become indecent to him and, and he's, he divorces her in order to marry this other woman. And this, this broader interpretation, this was what the vast majority of people in Jesus' time believed. That basically, any type of, of offense that the, the wife might commit, even to burning supper, was grounds for the husband to, to divorce his wife and marry someone else. So perhaps the, the Pharisees figured that based on some of the things they'd heard Jesus say, they could kind of put him in the minority camp, in the Shammai school, of thought, and, and the, seeing as how that was the very unpopular view of the day, maybe they thought, well, this will cause Jesus to lose a lot of his followers. I'm sure they were even more shocked to see that Jesus was even stricter than Shammai. <laughs> so if they were testing him, Jesus, he kind of went right, he goes right along with it. Jesus, as we'll see, he's not afraid to take unpopular stances in public, even if that meant losing followers, losing popularity. Jesus was concerned more about truth than numbers. Jesus answers the Pharisees by going back to Genesis and God's original intention for marriage. That's, what he's, that's where he goes in verse 4. He answers, have you not read? So Jesus goes back to the scriptures He's pointing them back to God's word. This, God's word must define how we think about marriage. That's what Jesus would tell us this morning as well in, the, in 2022. You want to know what to think about marriage? Go back to the scriptures. Have you not read? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So the Pharisees, by going to Deuteronomy 24, they're starting with a troubleshooting passage. Like if things go wrong, here's what you may do if things go wrong. Jesus says, no, no, no. You don't start with the troubleshooting passage. You've got to go back to the beginning of the instruction manual, you, you got to see the, the whole purpose 
for which God created marriage to begin with. If you start assuming that it will fail and you're just looking for your way out, it's no wonder that, that you're going to have a lot of these problems. But, but Jesus wants them to see God's original design and, and work in marriage because they had lost it. They had no, no, they didn't hold marriage in the high regard that God wanted them to hold it in. And Jesus, he shows them that, that marriage is God's creation, it's God's doing, and it's for God's purpose. It's God's creation. He, he came up with the idea of marriage in the beginning, in Genesis. It's his doing. God does something in each and every marriage. It's not just a human transaction. The supernatural is involved. And then also marriage is for God's purposes. It's not about personal self-fulfillment first and foremost. It's about God's purposes. That's what Brother Josh read for us a moment ago in Malachi 2. What, is, what does it say? Did he not make them one with a portion of his spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? What was God looking for? Not, not what were you looking for. What was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Marriage is God's creation. It's God's doing. It's for God's purposes. It's not first and foremost about us. Our love lives aren't about us. Our marriages aren't about us. They're about God and his glory. Marriage is from God, through God, and to God. Therefore, what blatant rebellion against God, what disrespect for his authority and possessions for sinful man to, to puff out our chests and to take what God has made and to try to undo what he's done in marriage, to undo the doing of God. This is what Jesus is getting at in verse 6. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Let not man separate what God has done. Now, a little while back, one of my children, I won't say which one, one of my kids uh, observed a tower made out of wooden blocks that one of my other kids had made. And the blocks had been carefully stacked upon one another. And it was a pretty cool little building. Well, child number two came along and saw what child number one had built. And he took his hand and he just knocked it all over. Just destroyed it. Throw it right to the ground. And you can imagine the child who built it was very frustrated. Now, I mean, this, he, this child had been working on this for, quite, for a long time. But not only was the work that the child had built destroyed, this act was a, an act of like personal offense against the child who built it. It showed complete contempt for them. It was an act of, of malice and hatred, saying like, okay, if you're going to build something, I'm just going to walk right up and destroy it just to offend you. Now, it's understandable why, why the child who built it was infuriated. And we had to, my wife and I had to jump into intervention mode to prevent them from, from killing one another. Um, so, but in a much greater way, we can understand why God would be infuriated when he creates marriage. It's his doing. It's his building. And man comes up out of complete contempt and disregard 
and just knocks it over. Says, I, I don't care what you've done, God. I'm going to make this what I want it to be. And this is what happens. This is what happens all around us. And this, this is why a lot of the, the perversions of, of marriage that we see today are so sinful. We have to understand marriage's original purpose and origin in order to understand this. Otherwise, we'll be sitting here wondering, like, what's the big deal with gay marriage? Why are Christians so upset about this? You know, if, if people want to do that, then why not let them? We have to understand what's happening. Marriage doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. It's his possession. And he gets to define it. He gets to determine its purpose. And who, who are we? How do we dare to walk up and try to undo the doing of God? That's why these things matter so much. Well, the Pharisees, they, they see that how Jesus is responding, and, and it seems like Jesus is saying that because this is what marriage is, um, that, you know, let not man separate, well, but there are laws that have to do with divorce. They, they turn back, they say, well, well, in verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? I mean, are you contradicting Moses? Isn't that the law of God as well? Yes, it is, by the way. God had given laws about divorce, had he not? We need to understand what Deuteronomy 24 is saying. So hold your place in Matthew 19 and turn back to Deuteronomy 24 for a moment. You can pay, find this on page 155 in the Pew Bible. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And this comes, uh, this is one of the case laws that God gave to the, the kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel, as he was bringing them into the promised land of Canaan. And he says, through Moses, God says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So here we have a scenario where a man is, is divorcing his wife and sending her away. The woman goes and marries another man. Then the second husband divorces her or he dies. This law is, is, is only saying that if all that happens the first husband may not then take his original wife back. She may not be taken back by her original husband. Pay attention to the fact that there isn't a command until verse 4. The first three verses are just setting the scene. If this happens, and then if this other thing happens, 
And then if that happens, then you may not do this. You may not take her back to be your wife again. So how does Jesus respond to the Pharisees' interpretation of this verse? You can turn back to Matthew 19. Is this passage commanding divorce? Well, no. Jesus says in verse 8, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So Moses, notice that word allowed you. It's like he, and the reason he allowed them was because of hardness of heart, because of their sinful hearts, their rebellious, stubborn hearts. Moses was allowing this, but it wasn't, as Jesus says from the beginning, it was not so. This was not God's original design. This is not what he, me- he meant for marriage from the beginning. He wasn't meaning for every marriage to end in divorce. There's a, there's a world of difference between allowing and commanding. Between allowing and commanding. Between keeping silent on something for a time and positively encouraging it and granting it as a sacred right. This is what we have to understand about the Mosaic law, about the laws of Israel. Not all of them were the fullest expression of, of, what, of God's will, of what he meant for humanity. Some of them were kind of stopgap measures just, just to put in place temporarily to try to prevent the nation from self-destructing until the Savior could be born. And so Jesus is, is saying you have to understand the function of, of some of these statutes. They weren't, uh, this, this isn't God's fullest expression. He's just, now he, he could have prevented all divorce and said this will not happen, but for his own purposes, he chose not to, not to enforce all of the laws he could have enforced upon the nation of Israel at that time. So, for example, God didn't outlaw polygamy in ancient Israel, even though that's clearly against his design. Does that mean it's, it's a good thing? Of course not. Jesus goes back to the beginning and says, one man, one woman. God made them male and female. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. But in the kingdom of Israel, God, again, he did not legislate in all of the places he could have legislated. This was a stopgap measure that was put in place for a time simply, I believe, to prevent women from being treated like secondhand clothing passed from husband to husband. And trying to get, get the husbands of the day, though they were hard in heart, to appeal at least to their selfishness, in a sense, and try to say, like, listen, if you're going to divorce your wife like this, you better think long and hard about it because you can't have her back. By all, uh, the chances are you're not going to get her back. So don't, don't enter into this lightly. That's what I, I think is going on there in Deuteronomy 24. So Jesus is saying, Moses, for the hardness of your heart, allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Now, even this this troubleshooting case law was taken by the people of of Israel in, in contradiction to God's whole purpose for marriage. 
It was twisted by sinful people to grant them a supposed right to an easy divorce. And, and Bible commentator William Hendrickson is right when he says, he says, sinful man, when constrained to give an appearance of law-keeping, is always seeking out the concessions, you know, the loopholes, the places where he sees he could get away with selfish desire without being seen as sinful. This, in this he focuses on rather than God's intention. That's exactly what the people of Israel were doing, exactly what the Pharisees and the, the people of Jesus' day were doing. They were saying, ah, oh, see, God didn't, he didn't command that we couldn't do this here in, in Deuteronomy 24. Therefore, this is our right. This is a good thing. This is to be celebrated. And Jesus is saying, no. Go back to Genesis. Look at God's intention. This is not God's, in, this is not God's original intention for marriage. Well, in all of this, what we see is man's rebellious attempt to undo God's doing, to repudiate God's design and work in marriage, to trample his glory in our pursuit of earthly things, in our pursuit of our own glory and our own selfish desires. So what's wrong with transgenderism? What's wrong with transgenderism? God made humanity male and female. And so whenever we put ourselves in the place of God and say, no, we create who we want to be. We define ourselves. I will not be, God, what you have made me to be. I will be what I decide I will be because I exist for myself. That's essentially the mindset. Now, I'm not saying that every person is literally thinking that, but that's why, if you really want to dig down deep, that's why transgenderism is a rebellion against God's design. In marriage, what's, what's wrong with so-called gay marriage? Again, it's, it's taking what belongs to God and saying, I'll take that thank you and I will remake it what I decide it will be. I will define it because it belongs to me. I will make it what I decide it will be and I will use it for my own purposes. It's robbing God. It's rebellion against his authority. But what I want us to see, I, want, I wanted you to see that so you can be helped to think through the, the cultural moment, but I want us to see that this is more pervasive than merely the LGBTQ movement. In fact, you and I have been guilty of seeking to undo God's doing in marriage, even if you, are, even if you hold to traditional marriage. Here's how we, we do it. You see, the, the, those who promote gay marriage, they're taking God's design and they're repudiating God's design for marriage. But what we may do sometimes is we may take God's purpose for marriage and repudiate God's purpose. If God is saying marriage exists for me, even, as a, even if a straight couple, they can take that and say, no, marriage actually exists for, my, for myself and for my personal self-fulfillment. It's about gratifying my selfish desires, and I get to use this other person as a vehicle for my personal pleasure. 
And that, that repudiates God's purpose in marriage. And so I want us to, to feel the weight of this. All of us in various ways, in our selfishness, we have rebelled against God's design, work, and purpose in marriage. And this is just one more expression of our sinful nature. And this is why God is so angry with you, with me, in our sin, if we, are not, if we do not have Christ as our Savior. The Bible says, and I warn you clearly this morning, if you do not believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the wrath of God abides upon you. It means it stays on you. It's, it's like hovering over you like a, like a funnel cloud, waiting, dropping slowly to the earth, ready to take you up and enclose you in the cloud of wrath, never to, be, never to escape. It's abiding over you. Not God's favor, not God's smiles, God's wrath. Because we have taken what belongs to him and sought to just knock it over in our contempt for his authority. Friends, that's a dangerous place to be. A deadly place to be. But the good news is that through faith in Christ, we have a Savior. We have one who has stood above us and like an umbrella sheltered us from the wrath of God, has taken upon himself, absorbing God's wrath like a sponge, that which we deserved. So that all of those who through faith, who, who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, have their sins forgiven. There is no more wrath abiding on them. There is no more debt of justice to pay. Those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ are pardoned, are reconciled to God. And so as as God's ambassador before you this morning, I appeal to you, be reconciled to God. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, if you have not taken up your cross and denied yourself and followed him this morning, I call you to do so. Turn from self-rule and submit to King Jesus. Do you trust him? Do you trust the one who wore the crown of thorns out of love for you? He is the only one who deserves to wear the crown of authority over your life. He wore that crown of thorns out of love for you, to save you. Don't you think you can trust him to wear the crown of authority over your life? God sets forth his terms. Those who come will not be cast out. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly, and you shall have rest for your souls. There is no peace with God apart from trusting in the, the Savior who came, who lived the life we have failed to live, who died on the cross to pay for our sins, and who rose from the dead and will come again to judge the world in righteousness. If you have any questions about that, if you're not a Christian this morning, or, or maybe you kind of believe in Jesus, but you, you don't really, he's not your king. You know, you're not following him. I would call, I would, I would urge you, like, get, get that settled this morning. You can have peace with God this afternoon, even this morning, even from where you're sitting. Repent of your sins. 
admit your sin to God. Confess it and, and pray to him, trusting that he's the only one who can save you, and he will save you. Well, in our sinful rebellion, we have sought to undo God's design and work in marriage. But God in his kindness and his grace has provided a pardon for us through Christ's work and through faith in Christ's work. He reconciles us to himself and brings us into his family as a, as a benefit of his forgiveness. But he also redeems the marriage relationship in which, which humanity has tried to destroy and pervert for our own selfish purposes. And this brings us to our, our second point this morning, is that following Jesus, trusting in Jesus, will mean submitting to his kingship, which will mean submitting our relational rights and desires, even with marriage, to King Jesus. Following Jesus will mean submitting our relational rights and desires, even with marriage, to King Jesus. Let's finish our reading our text this morning. In uh, verse, we'll start in verse nine and read down to verse ten. We'll, we'll pause there for a moment. Jesus said, "And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery." The disciples said to him, "If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry." Jesus goes beyond Shammai and Hillel and his restrictions on their perceived right to an easy divorce. Now, as far as I'm aware, the Bible gives two exceptions, two situations in which divorce and remarriage are permissible. Now, not all Christians disagree, uh, agree that there are any exceptions. Some very godly Christian teachers would say that Divorce is never permissible. Remarriage is never permissible. We can have that discussion. I, I find a hard time getting around the fact that Jesus does give exceptions here. He's, he says, where the, the, except in a case, except for sexual immorality. Meaning that it seems in such a case, divorce and remarriage are allowed. They are permissible. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, there seems to be another case where, where there's a, an unbelieving spouse that, uh, that physically abandons their husband or their wife. And in such a case, um, 1 Corinthians 7 says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. In other words, not, not bound to that marriage. But other than these two exceptions, which the church has, has traditionally uh, recognized, I don't see any other exceptions. There may be other situations in difficult marriages where, where separation is advisable. You know, maybe uh, as, as in such cases where maybe there's abuse. Maybe they're, they're for the safety of, of one or other of the spouses and so that the marriage can be rebuilt from a place of safety. There, there might need to be a, a time of separation. But as far as ending the marriage and marrying another, it seems that there are only two exceptions. So I want to just say that um, because a lot of people wonder about the, those exceptions and when divorce is, is permissible. And, and I'll just say as well that 
in such a case, one, I think one thing that the Christian community has done sometimes that I don't believe is right is we, we can, if we're not careful, we can guilt the, the, the party, the, the spouse that has not sinned into staying into a marriage. You know, we kind of, we counsel maybe the, the wife, you know, her husband's been adulterous and we say now, you know, you, you can leave this marriage, but, and then, and then we try to almost say like, if you do that though, you're really, you're basically sinning, even though we're not coming out and saying that, like this is the less spiritual, less holy thing to do. And I'm concerned that if we counsel people that way, we're actually binding their conscience tighter than Jesus binds it. So just, I'm open to discussion about that, but, but that is one concern that I have. And, and it doesn't mean that, that if there is sexual immorality in the marriage that, um, that the spouse, if, if the faithful spouse chooses to divorce, that doesn't mean that they have not forgiven that their spouse, their spouse. Jesus, we thought about last week, forgiveness is not optional. And so Jesus isn't contradicting that and saying, and saying like, okay, but if your spouse commits adultery, then you don't have to forgive them. No, forgiveness is always non-negotiable for the believer. But at the same time, Jesus seems to recognize that a spouse may forgive their sinning spouse and yet still leave the marriage that has been broken by uh, unfaithfulness. Now, this is, this is hard stuff. And I, I want to recognize that maybe you're sitting here and, and you've been divorced and remarried. Maybe you, maybe you hadn't re- really considered these scriptures. And maybe as we're talking about this, this is just an uncomfortable topic to th- even think about. And so I just want to say a brief word to you that, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if you know, you're sitting here and maybe you're divorced and remarried and it's not because of one of these two exceptions of, a, of sexual unfaithfulness or, or abandonment. And I would just, I would just encourage you that what's, what's done is done. You can't go back. You, you might recognize, like, maybe I shouldn't have done that, but you can't go back and, and undo the past. I believe that what God would call you to do now is to stay in the marriage that you are in to be faithful to the spouse that you have now. God can bring beauty from ashes. It it doesn't mean that what you did in the past was right. Maybe you need to confess that to the Lord. But you can't go back and and change that. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. It's not the unforgivable sin. The Lord can and does bring beauty from the ashes. So thank and praise God for his mercy. Love your husband, love your wife that you're with now. Be faithful to them and seek to dedicate your marriage from this point onward to King Jesus. Now before leaving this passage, there's, there's one more thing that we should discuss and that's verses 10 through 12. And this, is, this just gets strange. Jesus starts talking about eunuchs. What's Jesus talking about here? This is one of those passages where you read through and you're like, okay, you're scratching your head and you're like, well, I'm going to just read on and I don't know what that means. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to do my best to help you understand what I think Jesus is getting at here. And I'll be, I'll be discreet. I think what Jesus is, is getting at here, let's, the disciples 
they're listening to what Jesus is saying, and they're like, man, Jesus, if this is true, if, if, if this is what marriage is, it's better not to get married at all. Now, maybe you have kids, and, and sometimes they, they do this to you as a parent. Like, if I have to clean my room before I have ice cream, then I don't even want ice cream. Like, the ice cream, I don't even like ice cream. Ice cream's not even good. And it's, it's, it's almost like a, it, it's a sinful attitude. There's no doubt about it. So I, I think the disciples here are responding to Jesus's, his, he's setting out the kingdom values for marriage, which is a good gift from God. And they're looking at that and they're saying, if that's what marriage is, it's not even worth it. It's, it's, still, it's kind of a rebellious spirit that they're having, but Jesus is patient with them. <laughs> And, and he said, so they say, it's, it's better not even to marry if this is the case of a man with his wife. Rather than defending the goodness of marriage here, Jesus, the Holy Spirit does that elsewhere. Hebrews 13, 4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all. It's a good gift of God to be celebrated. But rather than defending the goodness of marriage here, Jesus, Jesus responds by by saying that, listen, like marriage is not the ultimate thing. There are some who don't get married for different reasons. And some who even do without this wonderful gift and live as, as eunuchs, in other words, I think metaphorically, live a celibate life because there's something even more important, even than marriage, even as, as wonderful as it is. He's saying there are some who choose not to marry, who for the sake of the kingdom live as eunuchs, live without ever marrying, and they do so not because, not necessarily because they find marriage distasteful or they don't like it. It's that it's for the sake of the kingdom. There's, there's a positive reason. There's something that is so valuable, such a, a higher thing, that they choose even to do without one of God's most amazing gifts. So Paul, for example, would fit in this category. The Apostle Paul, he was a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. He never married, and he devoted his entire life's work to the, the kingdom of heaven in a different way. It's not that married people don't devote their life to the kingdom of heaven, but they just go about it in different ways. God uses all types. Paul was able to take risks and put himself in dangerous situations and travel without resting and returning home. So much so that like, if he had been a married person, that would have been completely irresponsible. He, would, he should not have taken some of the risks he did and been away from home that long if he had a responsibility to his wife. But God uses certain people and he gives them the, the gift to be able to live in this way and it's not for everybody. That's why Jesus says, let the one who can receive this receive it. So just to, to sum all of that up, to kind of bring us to a close here, the disciples, they seem to be shocked at Jesus' values for marriage. And so they kind of say kind of a shocking statement like, well, marriage isn't even worth it. But Jesus isn't shocked. He's not shocked. Missing out on earthly marital bliss, as wonderful as it is, is not the greatest tragedy. Missing out on the kingdom of heaven is the greatest tragedy. 
Following Jesus will mean submitting our relational rights and desires, even with marriage, to God's kingship. All else must take a back seat. We must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that means within our marriages, no longer seeking to undo the design, the work, the purpose of God in marriage, but, but gladly submitting to it as an act of, of trust in Jesus, out of love for him, out of submission to his authority. And for those who choose not to marry, to live their lives in all purity and chastity um, and, and to doing so for God's glory. Seeking the kingdom is non-negotiable. Marriage is optional. It's good. It's not for everybody. But it is good. But the kingdom of heaven must be first in all cases, for those who marry and for those who don't. And all of this is empowered by the Holy Spirit for his glory and for our eternal joy. He's the one who gives us strength to be faithful in our marriages or to be faithful without marriage. May he be glorified in all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have covered a lot of ground this morning. We've talked about a lot of difficult things. And I pray that if there's anything I've said that's unhelpful or confusing, that, that you would help the, the, the hearer to be able to sort through that. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word and for the guidance that it gives us. And we thank you, Lord, for the wonderful gift of marriage, for the instruction you give for us on marriage, but we thank you even more so for the kingdom of heaven and for membership in that kingdom, that eternal kingdom, that eternal love that will never be taken away. Lord, help us Help us to put that first in all cases, whether married or unmarried. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.